Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 423. This program is in merit of Baruch bin Yomun ben Menuchelena and Miriam Baschayas Sar-Altes, Kusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basli Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadis ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. Welcome to those that are perhaps new to this program, and of course to those that are ongoing listeners and viewers. Let me just begin with a little housekeeping. We have a website called chassidahsupply.com, which is an outgrowth of this program where you can submit any question. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits, completely anonymously, and I will address it hopefully as quickly as possible. There is a backup, to be honest. Many questions coming in. And that's really what drives the engine of this program, the fuel, as well as many resources, including the archives of all previous programs, the essays and creative submissions that were prepared and presented by people from all over the world, applying this to life, real life situations and challenges. I will also like to invite you, I have a daily morning Hasidus class in Ayin Beis, that's Hemshech Ayin Beis from the Rebbe Rashab, class I began many years ago. All the information can be found as well at chassidusapply.com. It's both live Zoom and live YouTube, and, uh, and many other resources, as mentioned. So, with that, we are now in the fourth chapter. Bereshis Noyech Lech Lecha Vayera, the fourth chapter of the book of Bereshis, that began reading after the holidays, after Simchas Teda and following. And, and of course, there are many other timely events, as well as issues that we're all dealing with, both timeless and timely. So, as usual, collect from different directions. Try to begin with something that is connected to the, the words of the Alter Rebbe, living with the times, with the chapter in the Torah, and applying that, Teirah Melash and Heirah, most common expression the Rebbe would use, the Teirah is from the word directive, instruction, Thinking that think, look at the looking at the Torah as a blueprint for life, life's operator's manual. So with that, let's begin exactly with that. A bunch of questions that came in on this week on Pasha Vayera. But before I get to the questions, just the over the overall uh, overall overview of the chapter, and it's many many lessons to us. Now, of course, I've covered quite a few of them in previous years, being that this program is now going for nine years. So probably nine times that we discussed Pasha Vayera. And still, the lessons, both the ones that we've discussed and many more, are relevant more than ever. The first, most above all, the story begins after Lech Lecha, the end of last week's chapter, we, hear, we read about Abraham circumcising himself. So this week's chapter begins with Abraham's actually healing. So he's sitting at the, at the, at the door of his tent, at the mouth of his tent, at the opening of his tent, and God comes to visit him. From there we learn the mitzvah of Bikr Chayim, to visit the sick, as Abraham is healing. Abraham lifts his eyes, he sees a few nomads, three nomads wandering in the desert. In his eyes they appear like Arabs, and he turns from God and greets the guests, who end up, becoming angel, who end up being angels that actually are bringing tidings, the birth of Isaac and other tidings, the destruction of Sodom, that they come to share. But from Abraham's point of view, they were, they were simply human nomads that were looking and needed someone to welcome them. And he, that from there we learn hospitality, So there you have right there two of the biggest mitzvahs, both from a humanitarian point of view and from a spiritual point of view, that are the foundation of what human beings are supposed to be living up to, which is not just to look at ourselves and take care of ourselves, but also to help others. And the lesson that I always like to point out because it's so powerful, especially today, is that from Abraham turning from God who came to visit him, and he appeared to him, by Yair I love, God appears to him. Abraham turns from God to greet the guests. We learn from that, the Talmud learns, that greeting guests is greater than greeting God. Okay, a very powerful lesson. That even when you are consumed and you're in a very transcendent and divine space, 
Don't forget others. Don't ignore strangers. Don't ignore the needy. But how did Avram Avinu know that? How did Abraham know that? How often does God make an appearance? And especially here, God is coming. Imagine you're lying and you're, you're healing and someone comes to visit you. And without any precedent, without even saying, excuse me, I'm sorry, you turn away from the guest that came to visit you, to, to visit you because in your healing. And you turn to some of three strangers that happen to be walking by. And this we're talking about is God and Abraham. And the answer is very obvious, but also very profound. He was not turning away from God. He was turning to God as well, because these human beings were also created by God. And if you love God, you love what God loves. Abraham knew that instinctively. Remember, he spent his whole life looking for God. He understood with God. God was not just a personal experience. It's like you could be in prayer, halachically, if you're standing in prayer and a stranger walks by. In most of the prayers, some prayers, it's not the case, but many of the prayers, you're supposed to turn away from your own prayer and, say, and greet the person. Because it's rude. But it's not just rude. You're spending time with God, you have to also be sensitive to God's creatures. And one of the worst things is ignoring someone. Here it wasn't just ignoring, these were people in need in the eyes of Abraham. Remember, he didn't know there were angels that don't eat or drink. So what you see from this is that part of our relationship with God is also our relationship with each other. And one is not complete without the other. If someone says, I serve God perfectly, but I'm, I ignore others, or I'm obnoxious to other people, no, that's a major problem. And that's why Hillel indeed said to the potential convert, he said, when he asked him, what is the Torah standing on one foot, what did he answer? What you dislike, do not do unto others. The entire Torah, not just the parts of Torah that are the parts of Torah that are between one person and another. That, you could say, are all under the rubric, under the umbrella of loving another. Or, that, or the, the contrast to that, which is don't do unto others that you don't want, which you don't want done to you. What about prayer? What about offerings? What about all the laws that are between man and God? Shabbos, Kashrut. And the answer, that's also part of it. Because Shabbos and Kashrut, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 32 in Tanya, chapter Lev, chapter of the heart, Lev, love, also pronounced as love. That what? That the whole point of the Torah is spirit over matter, the dominance of spirit over matter, not about you. It's about something more transcendent. And that's what love is. And that's the entire Torah, even Shabbos, Kashrus. It's all about transcendence. So to keep Shabbos and ignore a person or in some way compromise another is not is missing the point. It's missing the fundamental foundation of Torah. It's a lesson to all of us, and it's important, especially today, because sometimes you can see the name of religion, people become divisive, disagreements, and it should never be the case because the more religious, the more connected to God you are, the more connected you should be to all people, even those that are not like yourself. So that's an overall chassidah-supplied lesson to Pasha Vayeda. Let's get to some questions that people asked. Let's start with the first one. What can we do today to merit that Hashem personally reveal Himself to us? So, dear Rabbi Jacobson, in the Hayyem Yem of the ninth of Cheshvan, Hayyem Yem is a short little book that the Rebbe composed in 1943, going through every day of the year, giving us the parts of Torah you should learn, as well as a thought or an insight from Hasidic, from the Hasidic masses, especially from the Friedrich Rebbe, for that day. So in the Hayyem Yem, the ninth of Cheshvan, the Rebbe relates the story of when the Rebbe Rashab was a small child and cried to his grandfather, the Samach Tzedek. He went in for a blessing for his birthday. His birthday is the 20th of Cheshvan. We'll talk about that next week. So he cried to his grandfather, why did Hashem show himself to Avram and not to me? And the Samach Tzedek answered, when someone at age 99 agrees to get a bris to circumcise himself, he merits Hashem personally visiting him. That's a beautiful story, but my question is, since many of us already had a bris as a baby, what other things can we do today to merit Hashem personally showing Himself to us? So let me add to this question something I heard almost annually from the Rebbe himself, Fabrengans that were Shabbos Pasha Vayera, especially some of them were Chav Cheshvan itself, 20th of Cheshvan, the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe would say, why are we told the story? 
The Rebbe Rashab was on a level, even as a child, that he's crying to see God. And he's told that Avram Avinu circumcised himself at 99. But why are we told? Are we on that level? And the answer is yes. We're not on that level, but each of us have within us a Rebbe Rashab and Avram Avinu. And if we put our effort, we also can cry. Not because we're in pain, not because something's lacking, but because where is God? And that's by learning Siddhis, you learn and understand that not seeing godliness is not just a luxury. Lacking a luxury, I should say. But not seeing godliness is the very essence of truth. It's not seeing the truth. It's not seeing the purpose of existence. Yes, it was concealed from us. And the Rebbe Rashab sensed it. And when he saw Vayera of Allah Hashem, he personalized it. Hashem is revealing himself. So why doesn't he reveal himself to us? And the answer is that each of us has to pay a certain price for that. It's true, today we already have a bris. The Rebbe Rashab was also obviously had a bris. But bris means also a covenant. A covenant in your flesh, a covenant in your very being. The blockages that all of us may have in life. We have to do something, a little. A little shift, everyone according to their measure. When we say, A little more than your routine. You push yourself a little more, you get rid of an, a, an obstacle, and that in turn brings a revelation. Now how does that revelation manifest? It can be in many different ways. It can be in the blessings in our lives. It can be our clarity. It could be the nachas that we have from family and children. And maybe for some, it's a perception of the divine, very divine. If you look closely enough, the beauty of nature, the beauty of the world. So it's the asichlis at times, which means without the eyes of the mind that we see the divine. But that's the connection. What does the bris have to do with seeing God? Because the bris removes the blocks, the concealments. So then the natural result would be a revelation. Now obviously Avram is on that level, Rebbe Rashab. But all of us, that is our purpose, is to find that pure clarity, the emes, havayla elam, the truth of the divine in everything we do. What's the contrast to that? Our own truths, our own subjective half-truths or even not even truths, superficiality of material life, thinking this is where it's at and this is all there is. And truth is this world is a surface and concealing the divine truth within it. And that's the purpose of, it, of the whole existence is for us to reveal that in the fullest sense of the word. That means making a a home for God in this world. And that will be revealed in the fullest sense when Mashiach comes. So here's a follow-up to last week, but also connected to this week's chapter. Last week's program, you explained how Malkitzedek was wrong for first blessing Avram and then blessing Hashem. Because ultimately, we must be aware that Hashem comes first. And I elaborate a bit more than that. Now that was especially important to emphasize as the Torah begins to tell us the story of man and man's search for God. So now the question is then, why was Avram not punished when Hashem visited him after his bris and he left Hashem to go greet the three guests, as we just discussed? Shouldn't Hashem have come first? These stories are inconsistent and therefore it confuses me and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't want Hashem to be angry with me. So there's two points here. When Avram turned to the guests, as I pointed out, no, he was not turning away from Hashem. It was turning to a deeper dimension of Hashem as he works through people. Remember the Ashgoch of those three strangers wandering in the desert. With Malkit Sadek, remember, he was a great man. But on a subtle level, it's important to know that we're all messengers. So yes, it would be correct to say if Avram forgot that these three people or divine, created by God, and they sent here, and he's just coming to be nice, and he's ignoring God. But that was not the case. He wasn't doing business with them. If you say, you know what, he ignores Hashem, he's going to do his own business because he sees three uh, potential clients, three potential customers. He was doing chesed with them. He's doing what he learned from God, to be kind to others. 
So you have to keep in mind both things here. We always have to be sensitive to other people. It's not turning away from God when you're sensitive to another person because that is exactly what God wants. And that person is God's child. Like I said before, it's also from Hayyemim, the expression from the Alta Rebbe, that if, if, if you love someone, you also love what they love. You love a father, you love his children. You love a person, you love the ones that they love, the one he loves or she loves. Then there's another thing to know, like we say, the wine belongs to the owner, but you say thank you to the waiter. So someone will say, why is the waiter? waiter is nobody. I'll just thank God. No, the waiter delivered it to you. On the other hand, to just say the waiter created it and gave it to you, no. It's a is the expression. Like a woodchopper, the axe in the hand of a woodchopper. He's a tool, he's an instrument, he's an extension. And yes, that's the constant balance that we have to remember. So when we say thank you to someone, in a way you're saying thank you to Hashem who's working through this person, but this person deserves the thank you. Okay. And when there is maybe confusion, you could always ask a mashpia, a mentor, a friend, to help clarify every situation. There could be situations where we may have questions exactly how much to focus and but then the day to thank both is the most beautiful thing to do, meaning Hashem and the messenger. Okay, hi. After learning the Rebbe Sikha about Avram forcing his guest to bless Hashem, so this is a medrash where Avram would invite the guests, and then when they finished the meal, he'd say, the Russian sometimes, he would like afflict them and say, now thank God for the food. And if you don't thank God, you have to pay me for it. In other words, he pressured them. So the person is, this question is, questioner is asking, I'm having a lot of difficulty aligning the lesson and message of the sikha with the constantly emphasized value of being kind and gentle to ourselves and all the more so to others. How does this align with chassidus in our contemporary lives, times? Even saying that some gentle pressure could be productive and helpful but that isn't what Avram did, nor Moshe when reprimanding the Jews after the story of the Meragman. They clearly were harsh. I understand that this may have been appropriate for their respective generations, but the Rebbe clearly indicates that this is a lesson for our generations as well. For our generation as well. Thank you in advance for any enlightenment. If you've already discussed the topic in one of your classes, please do guide me to the link. Very good question, a very important question. Remember, everything is context. When you look at Avram Avinu, that he turned from Hashem, and I say not from Hashem, I mean from Hashem's coming to visit him, to invite the guests, this is not a man that's insensitive to people. That's very clear. Soon we'll talk about how he prayed for the wicked people of Sodom. That's not a person who's insensitive. His whole life was dedicated to kindness. So then when you suddenly read the Medish, and just to be aware, the Sikh is an explanation of the Medish, how is, how is it consistent? Here's a man with such kindness and benevolence, taught his children, the family, his work, and he taught his family and his children, and the world, what, is, what it means to be charitable, to be just, to be virtuous, to be kind, and to pay a price for it, and suddenly he's uh, so-called pressuring, or he's even, in a way, afflicting, Mitzayir, his guests, so you have to say that it was not coming in an unkind way. It's like in any good situation, when you are kind to someone, and that's what he began with. He was definitely kind. That's how he, he welcomed them to his home, to his tent, and fed them. And you create a relationship and this trust. So to use the story of the Fridi Kareva that really captures this, when Rabbi Shalom Ber Gordon, one of the chassidim, of the previous generation, of the Fridic Rebbe, of the Rebbe, once asked the Fridic Rebbe, what do you do when you meet a Jew or person who's not necessarily behaving in the fullest, highest standard? Do you reprimand him? Do you ignore him? What do you do? So Fridic Rebbe said, you and your family, when you left Russia, you traveled through Turkey. In Turkey, there's a thing called a Turkish bath. It's called a Schwitz. And everything is a lesson in life. What's the lesson? You go to a Schwitzbad, you go to a sweat house or whatever they call them. So you go into a room that's very, very steamed up, whether it's dry heat or wet heat, and it opens up the pores and the grime, the dirt, the toxins comes, come out, ooze out of the person. 
Then you go higher because heat rises to the next level. So it's a stronger heat. So it even gets even the more subtle grime. Then the custom in these Turkish baths was you come out, you pay the attendant to <laughs> smack you with a broom made of eucalyptic leaves. Eucalyptic leaves. It's like a broom. And it's very invigorating, but also it's not slapping you, banging you. Someone comes in and says, why are you, why are you punishing him? But he's paying you to do it because it gets the blood going and it seems to be invigorating and uh, rejuvenating. So the Friedrich Rebbe said to Rabbi Gordon, he said, that's the lesson. Your job is to warm someone and then to lift them up and elevate them to a higher level of warmth. And then they will ask you to, hit them, to, to, to use the broom with the eucalyptus to hit them. Hit them. You're not hitting them. You're actually getting the, them going. But they're asking you because there's a warmth. There's a kindness. There's trust. So you can apply exactly the same idea to Avram Avinu. Had they come into the house and said, you want food? No. You need to sign right here. Only if you pray and bless God and thank God for it. Or he sits him down and immediately behaves that way. Avram had a whole meal, you can imagine. At that point, there may have been people who resisted. No, I thank you for the food. I don't believe in anyone else. God, but Avram Avinu knew it wasn't just about feeding them. It was also feeding them spiritually. He wanted them to go away with a higher state of awareness, higher consciousness. He want, Avram was interested in creating a sustainable. Obviously, he fed them unconditionally and would do so again. But that was his objective, was to educate. And educating sometimes requires a form of discipline. But not a discipline that you're imposing, a discipline that the person welcomes. And the end of the result is, you see, Avram was megayer anoshim, sar megayer anoshim. He influenced and transformed people around him. And you can clearly understand it didn't come from force, it didn't come from pain. It came because they willingly they realized this is what is good for them. That's how I would explain the, the entire story. And it also teaches us that at times, no, we never ever punish anyone, God forbid. We never afflict anyone. We never p- put anyone through pain. But sometimes loving pressure, a type of even humorously or in other ways where you encourage someone, like a coach. A coach will push his client, his student, to the extreme. Sometimes the student says, why are you pushing me? But it's toward excellence. But it's case by case, and you have to know where and what. And that's why different situations, if a person is extremely sensitive, they're not ready for such a push, then you have to wait. You wait till they ask. That's the context of this entire story. But thank you for the question. Very important topic. Why did Avram beg Hashem, beseech God to save the evil criminals from Zdeim? With Avram's radical... With Avram's radical viewpoint that we need to save the criminal town of Sudan, if we were if we were alive today, he would probably support cashless bail and letting violent criminals out of jail. Let's be clear: violent criminals should have no rights. They should be punished and suffer for the pain they caused others. Nobody should have the right to help violent criminals avoid the punishment they deserve due to their criminal actions. Not Governor Hochul, and not even Avram Avinu. Shame and Avram for his lame attempt to aid and abet the violent criminals of his name, and three cheers for Hashem for doing the right thing and setting those animals on, fi- on fire and causing and making the world a better place. Well, I read it uncensored. I don't agree with his tone at all. I just want to say that for the record. First of all, it's a little irrev- more than irreverent, disrespectful. I have no problem with the question itself, and I, that's why I'm addressing it. But I guess when people write anonymously, they can go sometimes cross some lines. So I apologize to any of the viewers or listeners because um, it's not the way I would phrase it at all. But at the same time, I really don't want to silence anyone. I want people to say what they have to say. So the question has merit, and that's what we're going to address. I mentioned before, Avram Avinu was of ish chesed, pure kindness. You see it in his whole life. But at the same time, he was not naive and nor was he a pushover. So to suggest anything what you just said is just absolutely ridiculous and actually quite uh, disrespectful. When Avram had to be tough, he was tough and he was strong. 
but it was not due to his own aggression or due to his own personality. It was what was right. What did Hashem say to, to what did Avram say to Hashem? That people will say, the judge of the entire world is not doing justice. Maybe there's a righteous person in the city. And Hashem says, if you can find 50, I'll save the city. You can find one. And Hashem knew that Avram would give him a difficult time. That's why he considered concealing the fact from him. Hashem, will I conceal this from a man who's dedicated to kindness? Am I going to conceal my actions? Because he knew Avram is going to stand up. Because it wasn't because Avram was defending the criminals. Avram was looking for some merit. Maybe there's some schus, some merit. Before you destroy, let's not leave any stone unturned. You could say the same thing, Moshe Rabbeinu. The Jews built a golden calf. Was being light on them? One of the greatest sins, idolatry. He goes up to Hashem and says, please forgive them. And he has explanations. He didn't excuse them. Those that had to be punished were punished. He didn't say they didn't sin. He said, they, they, I broke the tablet so they didn't receive the ksuba, the contract. Because he knew the love of God to the people and the people to God is deeper than the betrayal. But he did not overlook the betrayal. He spent 80 days begging. So that means that he's begging for criminals? No, that's what love and kindness is like. And even when a criminal has to be put away, we also pray for their soul. What does the Torah say? Capital punishment, even they hang a criminal, a murderer. You're supposed to take him down because it's a salam alakim. So may the sins be erased, but never the sinner. Never the soul. So it's a balance, because you have to know when. This is not about being lenient on criminals. That's not what Avram was asking for. He wasn't saying, ignore the crimes of his daim. His crimes were very high. They went and reached heaven. Avram knew all of that. He himself uh, suffered in many ways at their hands. His family, light was there. But Avram was also, as a tzaddik, was looking for the light. Somewhere there's a light. Somewhere there's something to be always to be looked for, for the hope. And that's a lesson to all of us as well, including to the writer. So before you jump to conclusions, maybe think it through a little more. So I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad I read it, and I'm glad I'm sharing it. But think it through, and when you see a person who gave his life to be kind, and at the same time was a person who pioneered basically all social justice, Pioneered the concept of God, one God in this world, that changed the world till this very day. Think about it before you just jump to say what kind of person he may be, or equating him with others in the same breath. At least the respect to know is a man that 3,800 years ago, our first patriarch, our, first, our forefather, Ava Goyim, that changed the world, that brought light into a dark world. Why was Hashem upset at Sarah for laughing when she was informed she would have a baby at age 90? Sarah did absolutely nothing wrong. She suffered being childless for 89 years. Have mercy on her. She should be allowed to react any way she wants. If anyone was wrong of this situation, it was Hashem for making our holy matriarch suffer. Sarah suffer childless for so many years. Hashem should apologize to Sarah and compensate her and the Jewish nation by giving couples having difficulties, having children, healthy children right away. Again, I don't know if it's the same writer, it sounds like the same tone. Not sure why you feel the need to attack Hashem. At the end of the day, it is God that blesses us with life. It is God that did bless Sarah with the child. And you can ask, why did God deprive her from that? Why did it take all those years? It's a fair question. But this tone, I, don't, I just don't relate to I mean, it's just not appropriate. I know you're not signing your name, but God probably knows who you are. And I would be, uh, not, I'm not going to say careful. It's just a matter of being a little menschlich. So I think that also is a lesson maybe from Hasidus Applied, how to write a letter like this. Again, I will not tell people how to write because this is a forum, as I said, no taboo. But I think it's important when you write to also think about the tone, the context, and the way we communicate about Avram, about Hashem. So this, of course, is a big topic, because not only that, you could ask a bigger question. 
if it was so inappropriate, we started laughing. Why is the name of Yitzchak Yitzchak? We're taking an inappropriate act and we name her child Yitzchak because she laughed. And if you look at the story, you'll see it's not so poshit. A few times it says she laughed. Now, her laughter was laughter. She didn't write this tone. She didn't say, what's the matter with you, God? This is ridiculous. Why laughter? Laughter is usually joyous. But laughter is also showing something that's not in the regular normal. Why do, when do we laugh? Normal routine. We don't just start laughing. Something's out of the ordinary. A deeper event is happening. Sometimes the laughter can be due to the mystery of it. How is it possible that I'm going to have a child? <clears throat> the second point is Hashem was saying, don't you think I can do anything? Now, Sarah knew, of course she knew that. Again, of Ram Sarah's context, they spent their whole life dedicated to God. They didn't think that God can do. God had saved Avraham Avinu from the fire and all the different miracles that happened. Sarah was quite aware of that all. But then when something like that happened, I'm going to have a child. So yes, there's a tinge where you could say, God didn't get upset. He recognized her perplex- perplexity. And Yitzchak ultimately, Chassidah says, Kol Yitzchak Li, is an element of laughter that comes from a deeper, since Yitzchak is Gvura, the deeper divine energy that's revealed in a concealed place. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that the, the matriarchs were barren initially. Because their birth came through challenge. And then when it's a birth, it's much deeper. Because anything comes from a dark, from resistance, from an obstacle, always has more power. And that's ultimately what Yitzchak really means. So this is all part of the context of it and the way we have to read it. And in general, Torah has lessons for us. Why are we being told this story? Because we have learned from it. See, even when something happens to us and sounds like, wow, someone makes a promise, say, how is that possible? That's going to happen. You, and you're like you, you giggle, you chuckle, like a laughter. That laughter could also be transformed. Initially, it was some maybe you're a little doubt. But ultimately, it reveals, no, it was a chuckle, a, a laugh of, of Kedusha. That it's so surprising, it's so wondrous, something like that could happen. And frankly, we should all laugh all our lives for beautiful things, for surprises, surprises like this and other surprises. Okay. A few more questions on the Pasha. I see there were more than I thought even. Okay, do the Arabs hate us? Because their ancestor Yishmael was mistreated by Sarah and kicked out of his home as a child and sent to roam the desert with no food. Um, well, it's possible on a very basic Balbatisha level. From the point of view of Madrash and Mahmoud Chazal, especially in Zoya and other places, it does allude to that, that the Sar of Yishmol always comes to ask for, for Lui Yishmol Lefon of Avramavinu himself said that. It was his own son. But we know the banishment of Yishmol was good for, obviously, for Yitzchak and for the family. That's why Hashem said to Avram to listen to Sarah. But ultimately, it was the good for Yishmol. That's how he became a great nation. Yishmol, from the word Yishmakel, he prayed. And God protected him and built him into a great nation. So even though at the time it may have been a painful thing, at the end of the day, Yishmol became a great nation. Today, the Arab nations have great power and wealth. The Zayr says it's due to the Schard as being a child of Avram and Yishmael being circumcised at age 13, but still circumcised. Later, Yishmael, the Arab world, would embrace Islam. Islam is monotheism. So though there's clearly a very deep level of anti-Semitic vitriol in the Quran and in Islam, not that it has to be, but there is, and that could be due to jealousy and maybe the story with Yishmael. But ultimately we know Mashiach comes. All the nations will recognize their mistakes and recognize the true God and recognize how the Jewish people are their older cousins and learn from them and live in harmony and unity. That's ultimately the prayer. But we go through challenges. I once quoted a note that the Rebbe responded to Rabbi Greenglass. Revolve Greenglass, where he quoted a mimer from Tofresh Mem, from the Reb Marash, that says, Afshi Yoda Avram, 
even though Avram knew what would happen, what Yishmael would do at the end of days, he still prayed, that Yishmael should, should inherit him, should live before him, continue the legacy. So he asked the Rebbe, what's the, what did he know? And what are we talking about? It's Mem, 1840. I'm sorry, 18, uh, 1880. So he writes to the Rebbe, maybe it's the Zoyer in the end of Pasha Va'ira, where it talks about that the Tsar of Yishmol, the so-called angel of Yishmol, comes to Hashem and says, one minute, Hashem, Yishmol was also circumcised. He needs to be rewarded. So Hashem says, I'll give him control over Ez Yisrael for a period of time, but, but since the Mila was not Tomim, as in eight days, they will lose control, and then there'll be a battle and war between Yishmael and Edom, that's Yishmael and Esav, essentially between Islam and Christianity, the Muslim countries or the Arab countries and the Western Christian countries, like Rome and all its descendants, Edom. And ultimately, Mashiach will come, and the Jews will rise, and Mashiach will come, and then will be peace for all. So he wrote that Zohar to the Rebbe, and that's what maybe means the end of the day is these battles. The Rebbe added Azayah Seh Pasha Balak, and he wrote, look in the Slichis, where it speaks about in the third day of Slichis, where it talks about that Sayyir V'chaisnei will be eliminated. Sayyir V'chaisnei is Esav and his father-in-law, because later he would marry the daughter of Yishmol, Esav. And there are many madrashim on this. I discussed this at length after 9-11 because 9-11 was exactly that. The Arab world or the Muslim world attacked uh, the Western world, America. So this is all that hinted to in the Rebbe Marash's words, So those elements of Yishmal that oppose and we see today, the terrorism, other things that have happened, May it all be eliminated from going forward, but still, it still festers. This, the Yalkut Shmeini that I've quoted during the time of the Gulf War, that a Melech Poras, Melech will rise up and a Melech Arvi on an Arab king, which was then the attack of Iraq on Kuwait. And people will be afraid, and the Abishta will come and say, Bonai, don't be afraid. Even though the world trembles and the Jews are trembling. Sheikh is coming. I did it all because of you. So you see both sides of the coin, and all really is born in this parsha, the story of Yishmol, the challenges, but ultimately that Yishmol, being a son of Avram, did do tshuva, and ultimately his progeny will ultimately also do tshuva and also come, just like we talk about the children of Esau that things have changed dramatically, as the Rebbe explains in the Sikha Vayesh of Tav Shinun Beis, that was once an enemy, that the Alter Rebbe would not want France, Edem, to win the battle over Russia, that today we can go into the Western world and transform it, of course, including the United States of America, <coughs> which is also ultimately an extension of Malchus Edem. V'hoysel Hashem Amlucha, and everything will be transformed in the Gula Mitis Vashlem. Okay. Our relationship to Hashem, because He created us, He is our Father. We've been taught that we must respect and obey our parents, unless our parents tell us to do something contrary to the Torah. When Hashem asked Avram to murder his son Yitzchak, again, the word is not murder. It says to bind him, Akedis Yitzchak, to bind him. We'll talk about that in a moment. That would be a request that's against the Torah, which says, thou shalt not murder. Would Avram have been wrong if his reply was, I love you, Hashem, but I'm sorry, I can't obey you in this case because your request is against the Torah. Firstly, as I just pointed out, the word is not murder. And indeed, it didn't happen. Let's look at the end of the story. It was never intended to happen. Why is it called Akedah Yitzchak? Why not Korban Yitzchak? Akrovis Yitzchak? Because it was the binding of Yitzchak. Bincha, Yechitcha, Sherahafta. 
This love, the fatherly love that Avram had, the deep love you can imagine, that with his wife Sarah was his only child. Hashem said, I want you to bind that love and connect it to me. And the only way to test that, and it was an Nisoyen, is that he was ready to give Yitzchak to Hashem. Everyone, of course, a controversial story, but we say it every day in Davening. We read about it the first day of Rosh Hashanah. We're proud of it. Why are we proud of such a story? Because the story is not about killing of Yitzchak. The story is about, on the contrary, elevating Yitzchak. Carbon first wars from the word Kiruv. Avram knew for sure this could not be an act that is inappropriate. So it's not like a father and mother, a human father and mother, tell you to break the Torah. Hashem didn't tell him to break the Torah. Hashem told him, bind your son. He did know, not know what the result would be, but he knew and trusted completely. And what was the kavanah? One of the most beautiful explanations. Hashem wanted to take his biological love, which is always subjective and limited. The love of a parent to a child is limited. It's biological. It's deep. It's natural. We're wired that way. But it's also subjective. That's why you can find parents can hurt their children in the name of love. Because they don't always, always know. Uh, Hashem wanted Avram's love to be to his son not just a biological one, biteva, but a divine love. He's your son because I gave him to you. And that way, should there ever be a question, you'll always look at what is good for my child that God wants, not what I want. I remember speaking to parents and telling them the story. They wanted their son to go to a certain school, to become a doctor. I said, but he's not, he's not on his nature, and he was really against doing it. He was already talking about a teenager. He wouldn't pay if he didn't become a doctor. I said, but that's not his nature. He wants to be someone else. No, it's the best thing for him. We know exactly today he's young. He's making mistakes. And it was this story that actually changed their mind. I said, Avram also once loved this son. He always loved this son. But I mean, it was once in Avram. And Hashem told him, I want you to make, do something for your son that I want, not what you want necessarily, not what's your natural to you. And what, what was the end result? The love was much deeper afterwards. Because now, we, from this day, we say about it in every, every davening, every morning, because we're proud that the love for a son became infused with an eternal divine love now. That was the ultimate goal. To bound the love to something that made a human love into a divine love. So that's one of the explanations. And that's why it has nothing to do with the din, not to listen to your parents. And it's not even possible. God is not going to come and tell somebody to do something against the Torah. Humans can do that because they have self-interest. It's an additional aside. Okay. So now that we've covered pretty much the Pasha and many of its lessons, let me do some follow-up. I have a lot of things to cover. I really feel... I always enter into this program feeling this is it. I'm going to cover a lot, and then we can move on. A lot of, there's a lot of backup, follow-up. So let's do some follow-up and not waste time talking about it either. So here's someone write a nice, a beautiful blessing. Let's start with a good follow-up. It says that Hashem promises to bless anyone that blesses Avram Avinu. So therefore, I'd like to publicly proclaim this blessing. May Avram ben Terach be blessed. May his neshama have a great aliyah. May his offspring, the nation of Israel, be blessed with great wealth, healthy children, good health, safety and security. And may they merit to see Mashiach right away. Amen, amen, a big amen to that. And call him Avarach Mizbarach. Exactly, you should be blessed and all of us should be blessed. So a nice follow-up. It's not a question, so I confirm it, I affirm it, you, you know, we, uh, resolved. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, on your Sunday podcast, while answering a question about Noyer being allowed to eat meat, you implied the only reason we are allowed to eat anything, whether it's vegetable, animal, or mineral, is because we are refining and elevating the sparks within the food. I think in Nun Beis, Tafshin Nun Beis, 5752, that would be 1992, the Rebbe said, the to elevate the sparks in order to bring Mashiach has been completed. So my question is, if all the sparks have already been refined and elevated, are we still elevating animals by eating them? And why should we be allowed to eat anything if we are not elevating it? Very good question. It's really a question, what does it mean that the end of the refining of the sparks of Birr HaNetzutzis, Avedis HaBerudim, and then what is our Avedit today? And what will be Avedah when Mashiach comes in the full sense of the word? For one be Bidur. So remember, Bidur means clarity, to separate. 
Right now, the spark can be trapped. The Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, in the early chapter, six, seven, could be trapped like a fruit is trapped inside of its shell. That's a klipa. And we don't see the fruit. So the job is to see the fruit. You eat a meal, not to indulge. You eat the meal, you make a bracha, recognize it comes from God. Not on bread alone, but on the divine spark within it. You eat with the kavana that you're going to become stronger and learn Torah. You eat and invite guests. You, you basically sanctify the meal. And the same thing with everything we do in life. The sparks are allocated to each of us. When we say birurim are finished, it means that the 288 sparks that broke down to many more have been refined, have been elevated. But that doesn't mean the job is over. There's a step of recognizing it. You, a battle can be finished and you still are living in the echo of that battle. Psychologically, you've been fighting for so long. So there's opening our eyes, the Rebbe says, and recognizing. That's also a shtickle. Can you call that a void? In a way it is, because you have to open your eyes and clarify the picture and see it the way it is, that the world is ready for the Geula. But you need to be awake. So that's, that's part of that. Secondly, you're still eating and drinking. Even though you may, we may have finished it, that doesn't mean when you eat and drink, you now eat and indulge, God forbid. It means now the kavona is not so much extracting the battle between good and evil, between the spark and the, and the, between the fruit and the shell, but the Veda is more revealing the good. And other ways that you can explain it. The Rebbe has in a beautiful letter in, in the Igris Kedish, volume 2, where he talks about Chis HaMesim, he explains that there are three stages. A stage where there's the battle between good and evil, between right and wrong. The battle could be over, but there's still good and evil in the world. And now it's time to recognize that and focus on the good. So it's not like you have a, a real enemy. The, the enemy has been vanquished, but you still have to recognize it and connect with the good. And then there's a stage where God completely eliminates He eliminates the, the spirit of toxic spirit in existence, the tuma, And he shechs and destroys the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. But that's God's work. So the idea is that we are now in a stage where the Bedudin themselves can be finished, are finished, but we still have to reveal that our consciousness has to feel that. But the consciousness, you could still have a goalless mentality, like those Japanese that were still fighting World War II 20 years after the war ended, or 10 years after the war, 15 years, because they did not know. And the same thing, a person who's been fighting so long, they, they have to get into a new mentality. The war is over. Now it's time to reveal the good that is there that everybody's willing to accept, but it has to be revealed. You don't have a real enemy. The only enemy is the absence of knowledge, is ignorance. Not because there's a force of evil in existence. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, okay. Last week you spoke about should we vote for a candidate married to a non-Jew? A better question is should we be honoring the Jewish husband of a non-Jewish wife who is vice president of the United States with lighting the menorah in front of the White House? This was done last year. Well, here again, the same thing I said last week. This is case by case. I don't think you have. I think I don't think you can go ahead and just disqualify everybody because of intermarriage or other reasons. As much as intermarriage is a, a terrible thing, at the same time, if a person is in a position to make a kiddush Hashem that they light the menorah, you know, you also had even the people that were not Jewish lighting a menorah, obviously in a way that did not go against halacha, and so on. The point being is that I would not mix the two start mixing the two, then there are many things that people do wrong. And you could say, unless they're a tzaddik gomer. I understand this is more blatant and it's more obvious, a person who's married out of the faith. But in most cases, it's a tzaddik shenishba, and not that I'm justifying it. So you have to put everything into context. And that would be the approach I would take, as I discussed last week as well. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I thank you so much for posting your such amazing videos full of wisdom and advice. It does help me enormously. After having watched 10 Steps to Greatness, 10, that's a program I do every Wednesday night. I have a class. This was 10 Steps to Greatness, How to Become a Pioneer. It was last Wednesday. It could be found at MeaningfulLife.com. That's our sister website. That's more universal. 
not so directly using the language of Chassidus, so people who are not familiar with the language can also appreciate the ideas. So after watching 10 Steps of Greatness, How to Become a Pioneer, I wanted to comment and would welcome you to dig deeper on how to become stronger after massive challenges. As my biggest was the cancer, God forbid, of my 15-year-old daughter, who had an unclassified atypical kidney cancer and was treated for three and a half years. Thank God she's still there, and I thank God every day for that. It is still a shock to me and to her, and we are still scared. It is too big a test challenge and too painful, and do not know if that made me stronger or weaker. The only advice I give to myself and to her is to live one day at a time, be grateful for life, and thank God. It is harder for her as she found herself unlucky and had permanent side effects caused by chemotherapy. How to overcome a challenge much bigger than we can cope with without falling into despair? That would be a good video. Thanks a lot. Kind regards. Signed, I am French and I've been living in the UK for 25 years. So did like, so like Abraham, left my country to challenge and test myself, but the disease of my daughter was too big for me and took its toll. So firstly, my heart, the deepest parts of my heart go out to you. And Hashem should indeed bless you and your daughter. Complete healing as if it never happened. And all the effects should not have any permanent effect on anything that she wants to do in her life. Marry, have children, and so on. And I, you know, I can't put myself in your shoes and just say, okay, you know, get over it. That's not where I'm coming from. I think we have to cry together. Like one Rebbe once told a chassid, I don't have answers for you, but I can cry with you. And that's also strength. But we have to more than cry. There's no question you've become stronger. The mere fact that you can write this letter. The mere fact that you're there for your daughter. So you may feel weak, and I don't blame you. But know you have deep strengths. So I'm not going to tell you anything like, we expect of you this or expect of you that. You have a daughter. She needs you. She needs your love. She needs your unconditional support, confidence. And even when there's a day that's difficult, you still have to fight. Because fight helps people heal. The last thing you want is to give up, surrender, resign yourself. So as much as I can say is what we learned from Avram, like you quote, that every Nisayan, every test he had, made him stronger. And the same thing here. The fact that you don't feel the strength, we're not talking about necessarily feeling it. It's there. And I'm sure your daughter feels it. Anything I can do to help, in addition to what I'm saying right now, please don't hesitate to reach out. Since you wrote your name, you can send me your email address. We can speak if you like. And reach out to anyone that you feel you can get strength from. We need to lean on each other at times like this. And don't be afraid to do so. God should bless you. Again, a complete refur shlema, but above all the strength to get through it and indeed become stronger and see your strengths. No question about that. So, as while I acknowledge and I will not in any way disagree with anything you've written, I do see your coping, and I do see your challenges. And at the same time, I think, keep forging ahead, and you'll see great things come from it. Okay. Two more follow-ups. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, you mentioned on your podcast several weeks ago that we don't say halal every day, because if we did, that's what the Gemara says, because if we'd said it daily, we, were, we, we might become complacent and not really appreciate God's blessings if we praise Him daily by saying halal. My question, if that's the case, why do we daven shachris every day, for example? Many parts of shachris, especially the halaluka section, after ashe, sections after ashe are filled with praising Hashem. How can we not become complacent by saying those prayers daily? Okay, very good question. So let's talk about halal for a moment. Hallel is not just another prayer. Why is Hallel reserved for Shredish, for holidays, special times? Because Hallel is saying that something unique has happened. Now you can say every day something unique happens. Every second, the world is recreated every second. And Chesidah says, Bechol Yem doesn't mean Bechol Yem, it means every Chol Rega, every second. 
So there's always newness, but there's a thing in Chassidus that's called Chidush HaYashenus. It's renewing that which was there. That's why when we're renewed, we're not renewed like newborn babies. If you're 20 years old, you're renewed as a 20-year-old. If you're 40, you're 40-year-old. With our memories intact and everything that's been happening, there's a continuity in this renewal. Then there are moments, what we'd call more like Anogenesis. That's Anogenesis. Chassidus explains from Nakedus Yitzchak. It's a safe Nakedus Yitzchak. And other places, that there's two ways to experience godliness. One is through Teva, the Tmidias of Teva, its consistency, its continuity. The seasons consistent winter, spring, summer, autumn, every moment, all of nature. Then there's Hanogenesis, that creates Shidud HaTeva, Shidud Hamarachis, where the system is disrupted and you see that God is intervening. Halal is expressing a special uniqueness, something that happened. Just like we say on our birthday, every moment you're born, but the birthday is still a special day. Or when we say Shechiyonu, you can say Shechiyonu every moment. So that's why Halal is reserved for those unique elements. Like saying Musaf and Shabbos and Yontif only. Because that's a special day. But then there's Intimid and Kisidran also on a daily prayers. Every day we day three times because we want to experience Hashem also in our Tmidias also in our routines, also in the continuity, also into the things that are consistent. And that's the difference between the two. Now we have to also not fall into the trap of mitzvah, which means to doing mitzvahs by rote or prayers and just repeating prayers mechanically, just saying the same lip service again and again, with every day with new kavona, new intention. But that's another discussion, and it's also part of it. But halel refers to the things that are unique and out of the ordinary. I also spoke about fertility, and actually I have a whole series of questions and topic on this topic many people have asked. So I'm going to reserve it for another time, but I'll just read one. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, there have been a few, Rabbi Jacobson, there have been a few discussions lately about couples with fertility problems. And I had a thought that 5783, Tafshin Pei can stand for <laughs> I'm not going to read the, the next two words. Pregnant, G. Okay. Uh, may it be God's will and may Hashem bless that our community has many healthy children this year and may anyone with fertility issues find the right doctor with the right interventions and may they have healthy children in abundance of parnasa. Amen, amen again, absolutely. And as I said, I'm going to reserve one of the coming weeks a discussion on fertility and many different issues that people have brought up. I see that it's quite, for some whatever reason, it's been an issue, not, unfortunately, not just today, but for some reason, it seems there are many more questions than usual. So I will address it in the coming weeks. Let's talk about the lottery now. A bunch of questions came in about the lottery. Some are follow-up. The good news is that I always have more questions to address. <laughs> okay. Is it appropriate to buy a lottery ticket? It says in Tata, we are not supposed to gamble. In Talmud Rosh Hashanah 22a, it says someone who gambles is not allowed to be a witness in Bezdin. However, because the Powerball lottery is over $700 million, I think it's already a billion dollars. I don't know, maybe it was won already by the time I'm reading this. But regardless, the topic is still relevant. I want to buy a ticket because it's such a high month number. Is, is it true the Rebbe gave permission to play the lottery, but we are only allowed to buy one ticket? I'm going to read a few questions and then I'll answer them all. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, are we allowed to buy a ticket for the multi-billion dollar lottery game? It's multi-billion already, okay. My husband says, according to the Tzemach Tzedek, we can buy one, but only if we have in mind before buying the ticket the institutions we want to give tzedakah to with the winnings. My husband also said that he guarantees someone in our community will win because this year is Russia Tevis, the Heishnas, Powerball, Goydel. Okay, I guess these acronyms are going already. They're becoming somewhat, uh, let's call it amusing. Powerball greater. Fine. Next question. Next question or comment on this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's completely offensive and repulsive that some Crown Heights websites and blogs are advertising that there's a billion-dollar Powerball lottery and everyone should buy a ticket. This is wrong. Gambling is against halacha. Our website should only be promoting Torah study. The lottery is a bad gamble. The dollar to buy... A lottery ticket would be better spent putting it in a Zdoka box. Then you win the Powerball of Gan Eden, 
which is an eternal prize. Ganed is also gimel, pay gimel. Okay. And then finally, this is a follow-up, and then I'll sum them all up and respond. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I like you as a person, and I love your online Torah classes. Uh-oh. But I have a criticism of something you said on your Sunday program, and you have said it also a few times in the past. Please stop repeating the same fallacious argument, fallacious argument, that if someone buys two lottery tickets, they are displaying doubts in Amuna because it was meant to be that they, because if it was meant to be that they win, then they would only need one ticket. If someone had a relative that was very ill, God forbid, and they decided to say three chapters of Tilim to invoke Hashem's mercy to heal that person, would you accuse the Tehillim reciter of lacking Amuna? Because it was meant to be that their, because it was meant to be that the relative should be healed, then only one chapter of Tehillim would be necessary. If someone needs needed to find a job and they sent five resumes out to various employers, would you accuse the job seeker of lacking a munna because it was meant to be then he would find a job when sending one resume should be enough? Then one resume should be enough. So also, although it's very difficult to win the grand jackpot, the grand jackpot of millions of dollars. There are also secondary prizes, sometimes prizes for hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. What if someone bought two tickets and each ticket won $1,000? That's $2,000. If the person only bought one ticket, he would have only 1000 He would have won only 1000 Just to be clear, I'm not trying to promote gambling. If someone buys hundreds of tickets every week, then that person has a gambling addiction that they need to address and get help for. A lottery ticket costs $1. If someone has a job and pays all their bills on time, and gives Maisa to Zdok and still has extra money left and wants to buy a bar lottery ticket, it should, be, it should not be a problem. If someone wants to buy two or, th- or three tickets, it shouldn't be a problem. Buying a second ticket is not a lack of a munna. What if, what, is, what if it's Hashem's will that the person buys three tickets and, win a sec- and wins a secondary prize in all three tickets? How do we know Hashem's will so perfectly that we can make false assumptions and convey false information to people that Hashem doesn't want us to buy more than one ticket? If Hashem wanted that to be a rule, there wouldn't have been there would have been a 614th commandment saying thou shalt only buy one lottery ticket. Since there isn't such a rule in the Torah, please don't put words in Hashem's mouth. Have a happy and sweet new year and may Hashem bless the host that someone in our community should win the grand jackpot of the lottery and have, a good, and, good, and have good judgment to use the money properly and help us help as many people and organizations as possible with the money. Okay. So let's begin with this. I'll begin with the last first and work my way back. But it's all similar idea. It's not I that said buy only one ticket. Let me begin with that. It's the Rebbe that did. So I defer to the Rebbe and I uh, appreciate your logical arguments comparing it to three kapitlach tilim, etc., etc. But it's the Rebbe that said it because saying tehillim is not buying a lottery ticket. Lahavdil. Let's make that very clear. Buying a lottery ticket is a form of Gambling to a certain extent, but if you buy one ticket, you have betach and the Ebers too. That's what the Rebbe wrote to one person I know for sure and to quite a few people. I heard this a number of times. So that's the big distinction. It's not doing three mitzvahs. It's not five resumes. It's a lottery ticket. And it's not about a thousand lottery tickets. One, that's the betach. That's where the keli, you made your keli. The odds of one to three are so minimal and I'm adding that, that I don't know if that's like the, the it's going to be a bigger keli if you buy three tickets. As far as the gambling part again, since the Rebbe did give the directive and told people to buy, he didn't say you have to buy, but he allowed it. So I have to say it's not together of gambling, what the Gemara talks about. It's more of a, something's out there. And yes, if you become addicted that you must do it in crazy ways, that's another story. But if a person does it, in a sense, nonchalantly, wants to make a keli, Abishta wants, it could happen. The odds are, 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 are very low, but it's possible. So I think combining those two elements that I just described, that, that we know from the Rebbe's Heirah, that it's not gambling. The Rebbe actually was more about, against stock market being gambling. But lottery ticket, again, one ticket, the Rebbe was not against. So you have to say it's not together of gambling. And at the same time, you have to keep it in the world of betochen. 
So I think it answers all the questions. And of course, the kavon of giving zdake is beautiful. And, uh, and, um, and may Hashem Taki bless someone to win the lottery and give a lot of zdake. I think we covered the... I'm just looking if I covered all the different aspects of this. I think I did. End of the day, the Ebeshter Shembost, above all, bless you all to have a good parnosa, b'derech ha'teva. This is an extracurricular activity, the lottery ticket. So be it, but it should be that. It should not become what you're dependent on. That for sure is not acceptable. Even one ticket. But making a keli, as I said, is fine. And that's based on the Rebbe's teachings. So, with that we're going to conclude. May it be a gebench to yar, a gebench to chedesh. Continue our journey and ultimately let us open our eyes and at we see the gula mitzvah v'ashlema of mamish in this month of cheshvan when uh, we elevate the mundane days of this month into sacred experiences. In Everyone have a very good week. This has been my life because it is supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Be blessed. Call to. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.